0: Hello, my name is Dr. Christine Ball, I'm a senior lecturer at Monash University and a convener of the unit of the Masters of Perioperative Medicine. Today I'm talking with Professor Toby Richards, Professor of Surgery at University College London. His special interest is clinical trials on risk management in surgery and perioperative medicine. Welcome, Toby. Thank you, Chris. So, how did you become interested in intravenous iron?
1: Well, it was a few routes, um, but probably uh, mostly when I did transplant surgery. So I worked on the multivisceral retrieval team and the kidney pancreas unit at Oxford. And that was the time that non heart beating retrievals were coming in, about so almost 20 years ago now. And it, at that time, the, the renal recipients, so those with end stage renal failure, were using intravenous iron and EPO to essentially avoid transfusion. Because as a recipient, you want to avoid blood. The more blood a recipient gets, the more antibodies they develop. And that makes it more difficult to cross-match for a kidney. And the more antibodies you get reduces the graft duration. So the one thing you want to avoid in a kidney transplant patient is giving them blood. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that when we're putting the non beating kidneys in, they take about four to six weeks to work. There's a delayed graft function. And at that time, as junior doctors, we're taking blood out of people every day for their blood tests. So guess what? They end up needing a blood transfusion, the one thing you're trying to avoid. And I remember turning around to the team at the time, going, well, why don't we just give them more EPO and more iron before they have their transplant? And that way, we avoid the need to have the foregone conclusion of doing the one thing we don't want to do, which is give them a transplant. Um, And that, that principle of not getting someone ready for theatre, but getting someone optimised as best as they can possibly be has essentially stuck with me ever since.
0: There were some other things that interested you in intravenous iron as well.
1: So I, did, I used to do a lot of mountaineering and um, a lot of climbing, and I was in Ladakh in northern India. And one of the, I was leading a school trip, and one of the headmasters uh, developed high-altitude pulmonary edema which actually we now know is iron related. Uh, but nonetheless, he was looking a bit blue, so I took him down to the local hospital uh, for some oxygen therapy. They were very familiar with it, but in true style, as soon as they find out you're a doctor, you find yourself doing a ward round. And then as they found out I was a surgeon, and I uh, you know, started exchanging stories about the need for operations, etc. And th- this place is cut off from everywhere else for six months of the year. Um, and one of them turned around and said, well, yeah, I've done a couple of aortic aneurysms. I was like, really? How do you do that? He goes, oh, yeah, no, we did it. And, yeah, they survived. I was like, really? How did you transfuse them? They go, oh, well, we don't have blood transfusion here. And I said, oh. Um, and I said, well, don't you need transfusion? He said, yeah, we've got a big problem with GI bleeding and alcohol up here, particularly in the winter months. And I was on the GI ward, and there's all these people with a hemoglobin of 2 and 3, and they had these little vials of iron, and they send the family down to the market to buy whatever iron it is. Um, and I was like, seriously, so does this work? And they go, yeah, yeah, about five days, and they'll be able to go home with a hemoglobin of six or seven, and they'll be fine. And I thought, well, hang on, we've got the transplant group where we know intravenous arm works, and we've got this group where we know intravenous arm works. Um, and then I came back, and I, uh, my area is vascular surgery. So my patients are pretty sick. They've all got end-stage diabetic disease. And then we do a three to six-hour operation on them, and guess what? They don't do very well. So it was the same principle. I just thought, well, if we feed them and exercise the patients and correct the hemoglobin before we do the operation, maybe they'll do better in the long term.
0: Okay, so let's talk about those patients preoperatively. Preoperative iron therapy is intended to prevent perioperative blood transfusion. There seems to be an association between transfusion and poorer postoperative outcome. Is this causative or is it just a marker of a more complicated perioperative course?
1: So that's an excellent question. There There are two or possibly three key aspects to it. A third of all people when they walk in the front door of a hospital are anaemic we know like for like that that anemic patient is likely to have a worse outcome compared to someone who's not anemic. And to some degree that's intuitive. If you're feeling tired and exhausted as a consequence of the anemia as well as the disease you're in hospital for, you're going to be slower to recover. Now the transfusion data is very interesting because if you are a sicker individual and you've had a bigger operation you're more likely to receive a transfusion And the more blood you get, the worse the associated outcome. And I guess the question is about appropriateness. Mm -hmm. If someone is bleeding during the course of surgery, there's no doubt that a transfusion compared to not having a transfusion is probably beneficial there. But you don't need to do too many transfusions. A good example of this would be if you're undertaking surgery, use prophylactic antibiotics at induction. You might use kefuroxime, 750 milligrams. You don't need to do it twice. Once is enough. You don't need to do it a second time. So if the indication for a transfusion is blood loss and anemia, hemoglobin less than 80 for the sake of argument, then if that indication arises a second time, then a second transfusion is indicated. But you only need to give one transfusion for each indication and reassess after that.
0: The PREVENT trial is nearly at the end of the recruitment of patients. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a brief overview of what this trial will tell us and how it might impact on what we do clinically in the future?
1: Yeah, so the PREVENT trial is a randomised controlled trial in patients undergoing major abdominal surgery. We took open surgery because open surgery, when we designed the trial five years ago, still represented half of all major surgeries, whereas now it tends to be more laparoscopic. About a third to half of patients are anemic prior to their operation, and the commonest cause is iron deficiency. So the question we're asking is, if we correct the iron deficiency, and therefore the anemia in those patients before they come to operation, do we correct that risk that you mentioned earlier, that risk of a worse outcome, and will those patients recover more faster post-operatively and do better in the long term? We've been predominantly recruiting people from major gynecological surgery, so everything from a simple abdominal hysterectomy to a Vertimes hysterectomy with a you know, pelvic abdominal clearance, colorectal surgery, and in some places, upper GI or pancreatic surgery. Recruitment's been steady. There have been very few deviations from the protocol, and we're currently at 420 patients. How will PREVENT affect the long-term NHS? Well, if we're correct in that intravenous iron corrects patient risk and improves outcomes, then the inclusion criteria of PREVENT should really be instigated into the NHS routine pathways. If we're not correct, then the... the real question will be whether or not intravenous iron reduces or obliviates the need for blood transfusion. If there's no difference in patient risk, then there's no real benefit of having intravenous iron before the surgery as opposed to a bag of blood during the surgery. But if it's cheaper, then it's more sensible. And I suspect cost effectiveness will come in at that point. But what's really important is that in the NHS, if we started introducing intravenous iron right now to every single patient, it's going to cost about 15 to 20 million pounds per annum for the pharmaceutical cost of that drug. And if we don't save the money, why, do you, why go to the extra hassle of messing around with the patient beforehand and just do it at the time of surgery? So I think it's quite important that we get that result, whether or not it's a positive or a negative outcome, it's going to have a positive outcome to the NHS either which way.
0: So oral iron, let's just talk about that, Mm -hmm. it is often poorly tolerated due to gastrointestinal symptoms but there's some evidence now that lower dose iron might be just as effective or more effective than higher dose therapy with less symptoms. Do you advocate low dose iron therapy and how long do people need to be taking it for to see?
1: hemoglobin rise? So I think that's really interesting and we mustn't just focus on intravenous iron. Intravenous iron has its role, it's quite expensive and it does involve an intervention to the patient. Taking a step back, looking at the population as a whole, iron deficiency is is common. It's more common in women because of the menstrual loss and affects up to 1 in 10 women at any point in time. The first thing to do is to address diet. For instance, vegetarians are not eating meat, for obvious reasons, and iron from meat is very readily absorbed. About 15% of the iron is absorbed. Whereas iron from plants is only about one in a hundredth of the plant iron is absorbed. So Popeye, spinach, it was all wrong. It, 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 It might be rich in iron, but you can't absorb it. And so the first step is to look at individual's diet. If you're a vegetarian you need to reassess what the impact that is on your health. There are cereals, there are lentils, pulses, soya, which is very rich in iron. The other thing is that you need to avoid tea within, or coffee, within one hour of eating because the tannins absorb and chelate the iron so they're not absorbed properly. Milk is another area, so milk also tends to bind iron. So after addressing diet, then simple iron tablets on an empty stomach taken with vitamin C or orange juice one hour before eating is a very effective way of increasing or maintaining iron levels. Now what's quite interesting is that there's a feedback cycle when you take oral iron. As you absorb the iron through an empty stomach into the duodenum, Iron's absorbed and you get a transient rise in your iron levels. So the body recognizes that and goes, oh my word, I've got loads of iron in my blood. And there's a hormone which is secreted from the liver called hepcidin that comes in and it shuts down the iron absorption. So about two hours after you've had your iron, then the body's going, well, we've got loads of iron, stop, 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 and shut it down. So if you had to take another iron tablet or eat half a cow it ain't gonna work because the absorption's blocked. And that protein, that hepsidin, that's come in, it takes about 24 hours for that to go. So what's really interesting now is there's some data showing that if you take an iron tablet alternate days, that's probably more effective than taking one twice a day. So the iron gets absorbed, you get a surge in your iron levels, the transport proteins are shut down so there's no point taking a second second iron tablet because all that will do is any iron absorbed will just keep the mechanism of shutting it down. Whereas if you take, absorb the iron, you shut down the transport, as the iron levels are redistributed in the blood over 24 hours, you reopen the gates for more iron to be absorbed. And on paper and in healthy patients that does seem more effective. We, the trials need to be replete, repeated in people with iron deficiency to make sure the mechanism's exactly the same. But what's the message? The message is for the general population. Is first thing is to address your diet. The second thing is to look at your oral iron tablets. Make sure you're taking one of a decent enough dose, 65 milligrams of elemental iron. If you don't tolerate it twice a day, Cut to once a day or alternate days. And make sure you're taking them properly on an empty stomach with vitamin C. After that, if there's a failure of improvement of your iron levels or ferritin levels two months after taking tablets, then that's an indication for intravenous iron.
0: Okay, so if we look at the preoperative clinic, we currently investigate patients having procedures where we know there's a risk of blood loss. We've been using the the preoperative clinic to capture certain population groups. So for this year we were giving the flu vaccine to everyone who was coming in to the clinic. Do you think anemia is a big enough community health issue that we should use the preoperative clinic as an assessment point for the community?
1: I think that's a really good point because anemia is so common and particularly iron deficiency. So Iron deficiency is actually the disease that causes the symptoms. Anemia is just one of the effects. The underlying cause is the iron deficiency. An iron deficiency affects up to 15 to 20% of all women, and that's what causes the fatigue and tiredness. If you don't believe me, think about it this way. If you're a blood donor, you go and donate a unit of blood, at which point you're anemic, and you have your four glasses of orange juice, And over about two days, you redistribute the fluid and the volume within your body. And two to three days later, you feel absolutely fine. Blood donors are not walking around feeling tired and exhausted for weeks on end. So being anemic with a normal iron store doesn't cause the symptoms. But being iron deficient, even if you're not anemic, causes symptoms. So should we be screening for this? I think there's a really good question in there. Um, we need to assess the impact of screening. So currently you need to have a blood test and we need a treatment that is easy and acceptable. So on the face of it, what you're saying is entirely true. We can do, we've got a a major problem that affects society. We have an easy test, a blood test, of ferritin level. And the advice is diet, oral iron, followed by intravenous iron. So I think there's certainly a role to explore screening in in the perioperative setting. Whether or not that's everyone, or a high-risk group, such as vegetarian, blood donor, or a woman with heavy menstrual bleeding, up for debate. But certainly, looking at an audit of that would be very sensible.
0: Okay, so what about post-operatively? Presuming we manage to get a patient through a total hip replacement who's not iron deficient at the start, they have some blood loss but not enough to trigger transfusion, we send them home with a haemoglobin around 80, 90. How should we manage these people immediately post-operatively? We usually discharge them day three or four. What, should we, what responsibility do we have to these patients now?
1: I think advice is, is very valid But what's quite interesting postoperatively is that inflammation, so the surgery itself causes an inflammatory response. And that inflammation activates hepcidin. So hepcidin is a standard response to inflammation. So after surgery, your hepcidin soars. And that's why your serum ferritin goes up because you shut down the transport proteins. So your macrophages sequester and take up all the iron stores in the body so when you do a blood test it makes it look like the ferritin levels are really high but because hepcidin's activated the transport protein can't get the iron out so the iron is there but you can't get it to the bone marrow or to the muscles and that's called a functional iron deficiency it's what used to be called anemia chronic disease so in this setting particularly after orthopedics There are five randomized controlled trials of oral iron versus placebo following orthopedics, zero benefit, none, zip zero, none. There is no role for oral iron after surgery, certainly in the first six weeks. The question is, therefore, will intravenous iron work? There are three randomized controlled trials, one in orthopedics, one in upper GI surgery, and one was mixed, but it was predominantly orthopedics. And if you give intravenous iron in this setting, you will produce a response by an increase in haemoglobin. That response will be more effective than placebo over the first three months and then equal at three months. So in someone who's at risk of anemia or perhaps has a history of iron deficiency or significant blood loss, then yes, intravenous iron would be an appropriate choice. More research is needed because the end point is not the correction of a figure. The endpoint is making a patient feel better and recovering faster. We haven't seen that in the clinical trials. And one of the biggest problems that we have in perioperative medicine is that we look after the patient incredibly well for the week or two weeks they're in hospital, and then we have no idea what happens to them next. This endpoint of 30 days We're very good at medicine. We can make people live 30 days. We can do that. But what happens long-term, and what we we really must move away from is these short-term goal-directed endpoints. We need to look at, does this patient go back to independent living at home? Do they have to go to a nursing home? Do they need increased care? Their renal function, will that deteriorate six to nine months afterwards? And particularly now, we need to look at cerebral function, the step-down in cognition, the ability to cope, or even dementia. And there's a real need, and I think your question about post-operative iron really hits the nail on the head. Yeah, it works. I can tell you that it works. No question. What we need to know, is it of benefit to the patient?
0: When you talk about the inflammation after surgery, I guess that applies also to emergency patients and to the medical patients who are in the hospital for long periods of time. Should we be monitoring these patients for iron deficiency? Um, And does this whole chronic inflammation and the, the problems with the feedback loop, is that going to prohibit being able to investigate these patients properly for iron deficiency?
1: Yes, that's a very good point. I think there are two aspects... If you've got someone who presents unwell, who's got a chronic history of blood loss, and by that I mean a woman with menorrhagia, and bear in mind, one third of all gynecological admissions to hospital in the Western world are for iron deficiency anemia secondary to menorrhagia. So that woman who's been suffering with heavy menstrual bleeding for months, if not years, just hits a tipping point, a crisis point that precipitates the Im- admission. and We need to think really carefully about why that woman came in the hospital. Is it the blood loss or is it the fact that they're so exhausted and anemic and iron deficient that they're unable to cope? So is a hysterectomy or whatever the surgical intervention the correct thing, or should we be right in there up front and with intravenous iron? And I think for that group with chronic blood loss, whether or not it's menorrhagia or whether or not it's a GI bleed, then upfront early intravenous iron is, is very appropriate because you're treating the cause. The second group is perhaps an acute admission, so an, an acute GI bleed and blood loss. And the patient may or may not have um, normal iron stores to start with. And there it's less clear. But what we need to do is we need to address the blood loss as part of a package of patient blood management. So is that patient on tranexamic acid to reduce blood loss? Have they had the correct advice? Have you stopped the aspirin and the clopidogrel? Have you corrected the warfarin? Are you feeding them properly? Are you mobilizing them? Have you set your transfusion triggers? And in, particularly in GI bleeding, we actually know that restrictive transfusion is better than liberal transfusion. But if they're in hospital for a long period of time, for several weeks on end, stop taking blood out of the patient. Because if you take blood out of a patient every single day, you're gonna make them anemic. Every time you do a blood draw, you're taking about 20 mils of blood out of that patient. In a fit and healthy person with completely normal iron stores, they can just about generate 30 mils of blood a day. In someone who's got chronic inflammation, the bone marrow is shut down. They're not generating any blood. So you're actually effectively bleeding that patient a unit of blood every two weeks. So guess what? You're going to need a transfusion. So you need to address the whole way you look at the patient... And if if they've got a high risk of iron deficiency in that setting, then intravenous iron is certainly a good treatment option.
0: Toby, thank you. I think that's answered all my questions. Do you have anything else you would like to highlight while we're here?
1: No, I think that covers it all. Apart from one key point that's a bit of a pet subject of mine, why do we accept a lower hemoglobin as normal for women compared to men? There is no physiological reason for it. When you transfuse, you don't have a different haemoglobin level that you transfuse a man and a woman. So when you go into theatre, as the anaesthetist looking after that patient, if a woman has got a haemoglobin of 119, that's not a little bit anemic. That's moderately anemic compared to a man, where you would accept 129 as being anemic. So you've got to treat men and women the same. Women are smaller... And they're more fragile, and the outcome for the surgery is worse. So therefore, you've got to optimise them better before they start.
0: So your job now is to get the laboratories to reset their normal range.
1: And that's under discussion at the World Health Organisation as we speak this week.
0: That's an excellent place to finish. Toby, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Music.